Well, thank you to our small but loyal audience for coming to the first read aloud of the quarter. Um, we're really um, grateful to the Wexner Cafe for hosting our program and um, we're excited about the collaboration. And um, I'm Donna Distel, I, I'm the coordinator for Read Aloud and I work for the University Libraries and I'm going to be your second reader. I'm Beth Andre, I work with Teller and I'm going to read the first chapter. And I'm Amanda Potter, I work at the Wexner Center in our education department. My name is Florence B. I'm with the Office of Human Resources. And I'm Deb Bell. This is from The Great Silent Grandmother Gathering by Sharon Mady. Sunday, on a buffety, blustery early summer day when the news was bad and the sky turned yellow, a strange thing happened in the town where I live. That morning, two grandmothers who had never met, not even by accident, put on their summer Sunday clothes, their most comfortable shoes, their favorite sun hats, and walked to the park in the center of the town. Now that, of course, wasn't the strange part because lots of people walk to the park, especially in summer. It's what the grandmothers did after they got there that set the whole town on its collective ear. What, you ask, could two grandmothers do that would cause such a buzz on a buffety, blustery early summer day? Well, just wait till you hear. The grandmothers who had never met, not even by accident, walked past the river and past the rose garden and past the playground to the center of the big grassy area that faces the town square. And there they stood, not speaking, not looking at squirrels, not munching on coconut candy, not actual point in fact, not anything at all. Ryan Riley was the first to notice. He's the busboy at Beaver Brothers Cafe that overlooks the park. Every time he cleared coffee cups and water glasses from the table by the window, he saw the grandmothers. What do you think they're doing? He asked Willie and Irma Beans, who always sit at the table by the window. Dunno, says Willie. Maybe they're waiting for someone, Irma offered. Mighty long wait, said Ryan. Robin, the waitress, bustled by with a coffee pot. Maybe they're pretending to be statues, she said. People do that, you know. Sue Ann Renfrew got up and looked out the window. Maybe it's a Chinese meditation exercise. Well, if that's exercise, it's the kind I could get into, said Leslie Plunkett, who, with her five-year-old daughter, Polly, joined Sue Ann at the window. For several minutes, everyone in Beaver Brothers Cafe watched the grandmother stand in the center of the big grassy area. No one could come up with a reasonable explanation for their behavior. No one, that is, until a very little boy said, I know what they're doing. Leslie looked down at her topsy-haired daughter. You do, said Willie and Irma and Sue Ann and Leslie and Ryan Riley and Robin the waitress. Yes, she said, suddenly shy from all the attention. Well then, tell us, said Ryan Riley. Polly took a gulpy breath and announced quite matter-of-factly, as a matter of fact, they're saving the world. For exactly 2.5 seconds, no one said a word. Then they all laughed. Leslie scooped up her daughter and everyone went back to their tables and that was that, except it wasn't. When Ryan Riley got off work that afternoon, he cut through the park on his way home like he always does and the grandmothers were still there. They had been standing in the middle of that big grassy area the whole day long. Ryan was puzzled, perplexed, and more than a little perturbed. The world was already askew 
and getting a skewer every day. If grandmother started doing unpredictably curious things, there was no telling where it might end. At that very moment, more than anything, he needed to know why they were standing in the park. So he did the only thing he could think of. He asked. The grandmothers, whose glistening faces were as pink as watermelon flesh, smiled weary smiles. And with just a hint of sadness, mixed with just a hint of hope, they said almost in unison, we're saving the world. This was definitely not what Ryan wanted to hear. It made no sense. Two grandmothers standing in the park can't save the world. Everybody knows that, except maybe Polly Plunkett, but she's only five. He didn't know what to say next. And the more he didn't know what to say, the more flustered he got. It's just that, well, well, you can't. Finally, he threw his hands up in the air and darted across the lawn toward home, his face as pink as the grandmother's. The big television set in the family room was on when Ryan and his parents sat down to dinner. They always ate with the TV turned to the news, and the news was always bad. Lately, it had been especially bad. The only time anyone talked during dinner except to say, please pass the parsnips, was when a commercial came on. That night, Ryan could hardly wait for the commercial so he could tell his parents about the two grandmothers who stood in the park all day. Why would they do such a thing, asked his mother. They said they're saving the world. His father laughed, shook his head, and kept on eating. But his mother stopped a fork full of parsnips suspended in the air midway between the plate and her mouth. She stared at her son, saying nothing, even though the commercial was still on and it was okay to talk. That same evening, Willa, Willie and Irma Beans met with their weekly cribbage and dessert group. Irma told the women at her table about the grandmothers who stood in the park doing nothing. When Madeline Swivet asked, whatever for? Irma said, I heard they're saving the world. She didn't mention she heard it in a coffee shop from a five-year-old. <laughs> the women at Irma's table were oddly quiet the rest of the night. Their husbands thought they were up to something. Monday. The morning dawned gray and drippy, a day not at all befitting early summer. Ryan Riley was clearing off the table at the cafe when he saw them, the two grandmothers standing smack in the middle of the park's big grassy area. The only difference was they were holding umbrellas instead of wearing sun hats. Well, that would have been the only difference if it weren't for the other one. This time, standing with the grandmothers were Irma Beans, Madeline Swivet, Leslie Plunkett, and his very own mother. Robin, the waitress, passed on her way to refill Sue Ann's coffee cup. What you staring at, Rye? Ryan opened his mouth to answer, but all that came out was a sound, like a cat with a hairball. <laughs> Dinner was late at the Riley house, and for the first time Ryan could remember, they missed the news. The meal of leftover parsnips was interrupted by phone calls from every woman his mother knew. Seventeen in all, his father was not one bit pleased. The same thing happened at the Beans' house. Willie Beans got so hungry waiting for his wife to get off the phone, he made himself a sardine and jelly sandwich. <laughs> Leslie Plunkett was besieged by women at Melville's Grocery, and Madeline Swivet's doorbell never stopped ringing. Ryan Riley had been at work two hours and had not gone near the table by the window. 
Coffee cups and water glasses had piled up and up until there was hardly any green formica showing through. Robin knew why. In the middle of the park's big grassy area were the two grandmothers, Irma Beans, Madeline Swivet, Leslie Plunkett, Mrs. Riley, and 106 other women, standing, stock still. At 11.37 at a.m., Jason P. Mason, a reporter for the local newspaper, scurried through the door of the Beaver Brothers Cafe. He ordered a bowl of homemade chicken and chickpea soup, which, if truth be told, was not homemade at all, and for the next hour slurped and wrote, slurped and wrote, slurped and wrote. Ryan and Robin tried to see what he was writing, but every time they came close, Jason covered his notes with his skinny little arm. You'll see soon enough, he said, dribbling soup down the front of his brown plaid shirt. They didn't have long to wait. That afternoon, the town trumpet ran his story on the front page, along with a photo of the women taking fr taken from the roof of the city hall. Mostly, it showed the tops of their heads. Jason P. Mason, who was, not even, who was not considered a particularly colorful journalist, even by his own mother, must have been inspired by something in the Beaver Brothers soup, because the story he wrote was brilliant. At least that's what the men said who gathered at the coffee corner in Bumble's bookstore. The article poked pitiful fun at women who thought they could save the world, or anything else for that matter, by standing in the park. As for the silly, misguided grandmothers who started it all, best they get back to their knitting. The world doesn't need saving, said Murphy Bebel, unofficial leader of the Coffee Corner Group. And if we did it, we have armies for that. And, er, and if it did, we have armies for that and elected officials. Here, here, said Clyde Cleveland. Besides, they're not even carrying banners or shouting slogans, said Duncan Willows. Everyone knows you can't save the world without banners and slogans. The men nodded and sighed. Well, that's that, said Mayor Pudge with a smiley smirk after reading Jason's article. No woman will dare show her face in the park now. At any other time, in any other place, when the news wasn't bad and the world wasn't askew, that might have been true, but not this time. Wednesday. By 8 o'clock the next morning, Squiggle squeezed into the big, grassy area. The rose garden, the playground, and the pathway leading to the wading pond were 2,223 women and one five-year-old girl. The mayor was beside himself. We'll be a laughingstock, he said to Police Chief Barker Poles. Do something. Make them go away. The police chief thought and thought. The women weren't disturbing the peace. They weren't destroying sitting property. They weren't even littering. Aha, he said finally. I've got it. He grabbed his purple police chief megaphone and bellowed at the women, who could have heard him even if he'd whispered. Ladies, your organi organization didn't apply for a permit to gather in the park. You will have to disperse immediately. The woman smiled weary smiles. No one budged, not even a millimeter. Make them move now, the mayor hissed. Tell them you'll call the police. I am the police, the police chief said. Excuse me, sir, said one of the grandmothers. We belong to no, nor to no organization. We're simply women who have chosen to visit a public park, which is our right to do. Wouldn't you agree? Chief Barker Poles, although not used to being disobeyed, especially when he used his purple police chief megaphone, was a fair and thoughtful man. He pondered and pondered. They have a point, he said. And for the rest of the day, the women stood in the park, not speaking, not looking at squirrels, not munching on coconut candy, not anything at all. Thursday.
newspapers all over the country carried Jason P. Mason's story about 2,223 women, including the mayor's wife, Vera, standing in the park to save the world. Most of the men who read the article laughed. Most of the women became oddly quiet. Mayor Pudge groaned. Friday. Network news broadcasts all led with the same story. In towns and cities across America, hundreds of thousands of women, many of them grandmothers, gathered in public parks, schoolyards, vacant lots, and on steps of churches, synagogues, mosques, and Buddhist centers. They carried no banners, shouted no slogans, and belonged to no organization. When asked why they were gathering, one of the grandmothers said, we're saving the world. The FBI is investigating. <laughs> Ryan Riley couldn't help smiling as he ate his parsnips. Neither could his mother. Saturday, Aaron Green, anchor of the International Television News Association, was first to break the story. From Beijing to Baghdad, Cairo to Copenhagen, Jerusalem to Johannesburg, all over the world and in ev nearly every town in America, tens of millions of women are gathering in public squares, city parks, fields, and forests. Many of them are grandmothers. They carry no banners, shout no slogans, have no leaders, and belong to no organization. The gatherings seem to spring up spontaneously and are peaceful in nature. Stay tuned for more on this remarkable unfolding event. In an unrelated story, reports are still coming in from our affiliates, but it would appear that ha there has been no fighting anywhere in the world today. The last piece is the author's story of the story. I always carry a pen in my pocket, rarely any paper, but always a pen. That morning was no different. I was sitting in my favorite spot, a corner table in the cafe upstairs over Bloomsbury Books in Ashland, Oregon. In front of me was a yellow mug that read coffee in 13 languages and a copy of the New York Times. Lace curtains covered the windows. Sepia-toned photos of someone's grandparents and great aunts dotted the walls. An antique buffet held coffee pots, silver spoons, a dish of hard candy, and a lamp with a fringed silk shade. I loved the place. I loved the saggy armchairs, upholstered in gold velour. The coffee table littered with the newspaper sections no one ever reads. The mismatched lamps, all reminiscent of a sweeter, saner, safer time. Downstairs was Bloomberry's with its creaky floors and shelves of books by famous local authors. Its, its resident cat, one is warned not to let out. Its staff of helpful humans who read the books they sell and know their customers by name. Someday I'll move here, I used to say to myself during stopovers on the long drive between Seattle and San Francisco. I'd imagine what it would feel like to be one of the Bloomsbury regulars to sit with a lap full of books in the brown leather chair snuggled away between the poetry section and travel, to visit with friends in the cafe. 
Then after years of doing other things, going other places, it finally happened. I moved to Ashland. Thanks to a small inheritance, I had just enough to rent a cottage for 12 months and hunker down to finish the project of a lifetime. A serious nonfiction book I'd been researching for nearly a decade about ancient scrolls buried in the crypt of a medieval cathedral, the contents of which were destined to save the world. Ashland was ideal because I knew not a single soul and there would be no distractions. I'd write blissfully, brilliantly for a year, find a publisher, and live out my dotage on royalties and speaking engagements. A perfect plan, except for one tiny thing. Ashland is not like other places. It's magic, and it has an agenda all its own. No sooner had I moved into my cozy cottage, organized my books and research notes, filled my cupboard with chocolate bars, and positioned my computer to take full advantage of a heart-melting view of the Skiskayub foothills, than every creative thought I had ever thought or thought of thinking evaporated. In its place, a big-time, intractable, unbudgeable, woe-is-me writer's block the size of a subcontinent. The harder I tried to write my serious nonfiction book about scrolls that would save the world, the more blocked I became. I meditated. I stopped eating chocolate. I walked miles and miles every day to clear my brain. Up hills, down hills, and past a wooden church with a red door and pretty stained glass windows. I joined a writer's group. I hired a life coach known for her wisdom. Nothing worked. The more blocked I got, the more unhappy I became. The more unhappy I became, the more blocked I got. Finally, after months of witless, fruitless striving, I gave up. I have stopped trying to push the river, I announced to the very wise life coach. No longer am I a writer of serious nonfiction about scrolls that will save the world. In that case, she said, I know a person who needs healing. Perhaps you can help her. She goes to the wooden church with a red door and pretty stained glass windows. I brightened just a bit, for I'd forgotten I also am a healer of persons who need healing. It's precisely what I will do, I said. And that's when the magic started. The more healing I did, the happier I became. The happier I became, the more people came to me for healing. A beautiful young woman whose mother lived in Ashland came all the way from another state. Because I had enough to live on for the year, I asked people to pay me in hugs instead of money. And so they did. Except for a woman who gave me an envelope and said, save this for something special. Life was wonderful. I smiled and smiled. On a sunny spring morning, I walked into the wooden church with the red door to see the inside the, the pretty stained glass windows. Hello, a cheerful woman said. I know everyone in town and I will introduce you. Soon our days will be filled with friends and laughter. And so they were. One of the people the cheerful woman introduced me to had a horrible, terrible pain in her back. If you help me, I will tell you something important, she said. It is at least what she would have said if she had known she was about to do that very thing. So I put my hands on her terrible, horrible pain and she said, you need to write a children's book for grown-ups. My heart sank. I don't write children's books for grown-ups, I said. I write serious nonfiction. Teetle-dee-doo, she said. And that was that. Except, as we all know, it wasn't. 
A few days later, the most wonderful thing happened. I became a grandmother. The baby was a girl, and her parents named her Layla. What, I wondered, could I give baby Layla that would be so especially special? She would always remember she had a grandmother she loved and who loved her. A star, I thought. I could have a star named after her. There are billions and billions of stars, Lego's father said. That's not special. A chair, I said. I could paint a chair with fairies and dragonflies and a princess crown in her very own name. She's too small for a chair now, sighed Layla's mother, and soon she'll be too big for it. I thought and thought. I could write her a story, but not a children's story because she'd soon outgrow it, and not a grown-up story because she'd have to wait too long to read it. A children's story for grown-ups. Teetle-dee-doo, said the woman who used to have a terrible, horrible pain in her back, which in a roundabout way, because that's how things happened in Ashland, brings us right back to where we started, the cafe upstairs over Bloomsbury Books. I sipped the last of my coffee from the yellow mug and leafed through the New York Times. The news was dreadful. Fighting in Iraq, fighting in Afghanistan, fighting in Sudan, Spain, Haiti, Colombia, the West Bank and Gaza, North Korea and Iran were making scary noises. India and Pakistan were at it again. It was five months before the crabbiest presidential election anyone could remember. The dollar was low, the stock market was low, and the term French fries had become an anathema. In short, the world was askew and getting askewer every day. There must be a better way, I said to the empty chair across from me. And in that instant, perhaps because Ashland is magic, but maybe just because it was time, I remembered something a Native American elder said to me a very long time ago. Men have taken the world as far as they can. It's up to the women to lead us the rest of the way. I closed the newspaper, smoothed out my napkin, took the pen from my pocket, and with just a hint of sadness, mixed with just a hint of hope, I wrote, on a buffety, blustery, early summer day, when the news was bad and the sky turned yellow, a strange thing happened in the town where I live. What's this, I asked the photo of great aunt somebody on the wall next to me, and where's it going? I didn't have long to wait. That morning, two grandmothers who had never met, not even by accident, put on their summer Sunday clothes, their most comfortable shoes, their favorite sun hats, and walked to the park in the center of town. Having run out of napkin space, I said goodbye to the cafe owner and walked up the street to the cottage wherein languished my unused computer. A few words hastily scribbled on the paper napkin, and the great silent grandmother gathering was born. Yoo-hoo, they called from a stone bench in front of the town fountain. It was the beautiful young woman from another state who had come to me for healing. With her was her mother. Let me read you the story I wrote for my granddaughter, I said, as we sat in the sun drinking tea. When I finished, the mother said, I'm going to a very big conference. I must take copies of your story. But it's just a little story for my granddaughter. A hundred copies would be good, the mother said. Maybe it could be a little booklet, said her beautiful daughter. We might need 200 copies, the mother said. With artwork, said her beautiful daughter. 
but it's just, perhaps we should have it translated, the mother said. Hebrew, Arabic, and French. It is, after all, going to the United Nations. Oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, I said. Let me read you the story I wrote for my granddaughter, I said to the life coach known for her wisdom. It's going to the United Nations. Here, she said when I finished, you'll need money to print the booklet. You'll need art for the cover, another friend said. Here's a greeting card with art that is perfect. Lots and lots of grandmothers. I'm sure the illustrator will let you use it. There's another very big conference coming up, said the mother of the beautiful daughter. More copies. Here, said friends, you'll need money. Let us perform the story, said an actress. But it's just a little story for my granddaughter. We'll do a splendid job and you can sell your booklets, she said. I have no more booklets. Then you'll need to print more, said the cheerful woman who had introduced me to so many people. Maybe a woman gave you an envelope to save for something special. One of the helpful humans from Bloomberry's phoned. Would you like to read your story at our store? Oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, I said. Indeed, I would. The radio, a man said. We want to interview you on the radio about your book. It's not a book, I said. It's just a little story. We need more books, said the helpful humans at Bloomsbury. A lot more books. There's a very big conference on peace, the beautiful young Mormon's mother said. This time in South Africa, we need books. It's just a book, what I said, not a book. And so it went. Orders started coming in from around the world. Bookstores in other towns asked for the story. One day, the pastor of the wooden church with the red door and pretty stained glass windows said, maybe I'd like to read the story there. I smiled and smiled. The year passed quickly. I did not finish my project of a lifetime, my serious nonfiction book about buried scrolls that will save the world. All I wrote was a little story for a newborn babe about grandmothers standing in the park. A story that by all rights should have gone utterly unnoticed. And at any other time, in any other place, when the news wasn't bad and the world wasn't askew, that might have been true, but not this time. A number of us read this book and have gotten involved in a project, and now everyone here is involved in it. <laughs> We've got several dozen women involved, and Beck Andre, who was just here, who just left, is uh, working on the technology. But we uh, have decided we could have an event worldwide. On We picked Mother's Day in this country, although they're not billing it as a Mother's Day event because not all countries um, observe Mother's Day. But we're going to have it on May 13th at 1 p.m., local time, and we've in the, we're in the process of creating a wonderful website, which is www.standingwomen.org, and it should be available by late January. And when people go to the website, they will be able to choose one of about, right now we've got about 15 languages available, and they will be able to choose their language and they will find a summary of the story and then an announcement about the event, which starts off with the women of Ohio are asking the women of the world to stand with them on May 13, 2007, at 1 p.m. local time. And there will be a statement about what we're standing for. And it starts out with, we are standing for the world's children and grandchildren and for seven generations and beyond. 
and it talks about the kind of world we dream of for all of our children. And we then have already shot a video for YouTube, which we will then uh, put up the same day we get the website up and running. And we plan then to flood every email list we know of, asking people to sign up their commitment to stand and to send it on to everybody else that they know of in the world. And we really do dream of a day where there will be a 24-hour wave of women who also we want them to invite the men they love and the children they love to come stand with them for five minutes of silence at their local park or whatever local gathering place they want to stand at. And for that five minutes, think about what we can do individually and collectively to attain the kind of world we dream of. And then afterwards, people can go off among their families and talk about what they could do. And so we would be really happy to have you stand with us on May 13th at 1 p.m. local time. So. <laughs> so thank you all for reading.